Martin Luther died at age 63, meaning two-thirds of his life was spent single. And yet, Luther could say, God's highest earthly gift is a spiritually-minded, cheerful, God-fearing, home-keeping wife. All the way from Bokota Village in Limpopo, South Africa, we bring you Missionary Minds, where you can learn about family, church history, biblical worldview issues, and of course, missions. All from the mind of a real-world missionary of almost 20 years. Buddy Paul, must a Christian always marry another Christian? Over to you, Mfundisi. First, the story. Martin Luther, as you may know, was the great German reformer of the Protestant Reformation. And despite all of his accomplishments, which included going toe-to-toe with the Pope, translating the New Testament into German in just 11 weeks, you know, ho-hum, basic work, Mm -hmm. it might have been his marriage that had the longest and most significant impact because it freed the terrified priests in the Catholic Church to throw off the diabolical chains of forced celibacy, and Luther's position encouraged them to take a wife. Mm. But what many people may not know is that Luther wasn't married until he was 42 years old. And let that be an encouragement to those single men a little more advanced in years. Although Katie was 26 years old at the time. Martin Luther died at age 63, meaning two-thirds of his life was spent single. And yet, Luther could say, God's highest earthly gift is a spiritually-minded, cheerful, God-fearing, home-keeping wife. The greatest earthly gift, in other words, according to Luther, was not just a wife, but it was a certain kind of wife. It was a godly wife. And there are many young men and young women out there today that are tempted to take shortcuts when it comes to marriage. And so this leads us to our question today, which is this, must a Christian always marry another Christian. And we must say at the very beginning that scripture forbids interfaith marriage. That is two different faiths coming together. The Bible is littered with passages that warn believers not to marry unbelievers. Ezra 10, 2 Corinthians 6. Or do you think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says we must marry in the Lord. You have the Old Testament. Moses warns parents about giving their children away in marriage to unbelievers. And he says to them, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Deuteronomy 7. So in the Old Testament, it's assumed that relationships with pagans would lead Israel into sin, which is why he says, don't let them into your land because they will then sin against me. And Malachi shared Ezra's hatred for interfaith marriage in Malachi 2 when he actually describes a believer 
married to an unbeliever as profaning the covenant. He describes it as an abomination for your daughters to marry men of a foreign God. And then in the New Testament, same thing. Christians are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, according to 2 Corinthians 6, 14, but they should only marry in the Lord. And should one of the unbelieving spouses come to Christ after marriage, which happened with my own parents, they were unbelievers before they were married, then my mother comes to Christ, but then she was able to see my father come to Christ according to the principle of 1 Corinthians 7, which means through the power of the gospel and through a godly testimony, she was able to influence her ungodly spouse toward salvation. Hmm. That's very interesting and it's ironic. At the time of this recording, I've been married just over a month. And I remember we were taking a walk and I mentioned to you that I've changed my refrain to my friends when I chat to them about marriage. Just saying marriage is the greatest gift uh, doesn't just do it for me anymore. It's saying a godly marriage is the greatest gift. And that's the emphasis that's brought there. But what about the person that talks about recreational dating? So I'm just in it for the fun. I just need something to spend some time on so I don't feel lonely. Maybe the person who's thinking that, would you Paul, I can win this person for Christ? I feel like they're close to salvation. They've been coming to church. They're part of my youth group. Or maybe the person who's just saying, I have no way to get to know this person. They're, they're in church and they haven't given a profession of faith, but I want to date them so I get to know them. What would you say to these people? Yeah. This is where logic is so important, and logic is basically absent in our education today, but follow it here. If Christians may only marry Christians, and the purpose of dating slash courting is to find a spouse, then logically and biblically, it follows that Christians should not even pursue unbelievers by dating slash courting them. Now, there are lots of arguments that Christians use to validate pursuing an unbeliever. Let me give you a few of them. One would be, I'll lead him or her to Christ. And yet the Bible never offers this as a viable method of evangelism. We've heard about friendship evangelism, and it's almost as though People think of courtship evangelism as some kind of biblical category. But the fact is that often it is the unbeliever that pulls away the Christian to their side. Solomon, a perfect example. His heart was stolen by his pagan wives. And that brings out the principle, which the New Testament tells us, bad company corrupts good morals. Here's another common argument. I'm just dating him or her for fun, but we're not going to get, actually get married. Well, then I would say you're not following the right pattern for dating because much immorality comes from couples dating, quote unquote, just for fun. But courting is purposeful dating. It is dating with the parents involved. And that's why I believe Courting is superior to basic dating because the primary goal of courting is to find a spouse. And if you're not ready to marry, 
then you're not ready to date. Let me just point out one more common argument, and that would be, hey, I can't get to know this person unless I date him first. And I would say, actually, there's many great ways to learn about potential spouses before courting them. One good example is to speak to your pastor or to your pastor's wife and to seek their counsel. They could sit down with the person to vet him. You should also speak to your parents and ask their thoughts on the matter. And I understand this is not always easy to do, especially if the parents of the young person are not believers, but nonetheless, it ought to be purposeful in getting family and wise counselors involved. You bring up a very good point, which is asking a pastor or a pastor's wife. A certain friend comes to mind, and with him, it's almost like it's a textbook answer because how grounded he is in these truths. And I feel like I can answer for him when we're having conversations with another person. Because whenever prospects for romantic interests come up, it's the same answer. Is this person a member in the local church? How long have they been a member? Are they a member in good standing? Because some people are just barely members. What ministries are they serving in? Um, and what testimony do they have with the pastors and their wives? Are they getting discipled and the like? And so that's a good point about how to get to know someone before you actually engage them. Going on to the next thing. So getting parents involved. Some people may say that they find challenges with um, getting parents involved and how to go about it. Uh, what would you say to someone who says, I can't get my parents involved because there may be issues of lobola involved or there may be other issues. And I think maybe I'll just go at it alone and uh, then maybe at a later stage, bring it up. Do you have any counsel for that situation? Yeah, I spoke to one pastor who was adamant that a particular young suitor should not speak to the father of the girl until he was ready to pay the labola or the bride price. Mm. He actually said it was insulting in his culture to do otherwise. But as scripture teaches, when culture collides with scripture, we must always side with scripture. Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Mm. So we would say a father biblically is responsible for the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of his children. That's the principle of Ephesians 6.4. And he, in fact, is considered worse than an infidel if he does not care for his children. 1 Timothy 5.8 which must include the oversight in choosing a future spouse. You think about the fathers in the Old Testament, and they were at the forefront when it came to his children's marriages. Before a relationship ever begins, a father ought to do some research about the young man's family, background, and church. Then he should sit down with the young man and over the course of time get to know him before he eventually decides if his answer is yes or no to a formal courting relationship. When someone is, let's say, older, maybe a lady who's left the home 
or there is a lady whose parents have died or the father's out of the picture. What is someone to do in that situation? They don't have any fatherly figures. What do they do? Then I would go to a father in the faith. Timothy's father in the faith was Paul. So do that. If you don't have a godly mother, a godly father, they don't care. You're a first generation Christian. Great. Go to your pastor, go to your pastor's wife, go to a godly person at your church and have them take the place of that situation. And would you say that applies also when someone is in a situation where the parents have refused to meet the suitor until he comes to pay Lobola, which in our culture is bridal price. So if they're in that situation, should the young lady take the same approach or should she keep trying to press on her father to spend time with this young man, meet the young man and like? I mean, I know of a, an example of this right now where this is taking place. There's a relationship being formed between a Christian young man and a Christian young lady, but the parents of the Christian young lady are not believers. And so she's hopefully respectfully spoken to the parents and said, please get to know the young man especially, and that hasn't borne fruit yet. I would say in that particular situation, be as respectful as possible to the parents. And I'm not opposed to the bride price Lavola. Great, go for it. As long as it's done in the proper way and as long as it's viewed in the proper way, I think it would go a long way to uh, towards the relationship if they were able to somehow communicate to the parents, here's where we are biblically. This is what we believe the scripture demands. I would love to form a relationship a little bit with you before we actually get to the formal ceremony of Lobola. And if they are opposed to that, then I would say get counsel from the uh, pastors of your church. And if it means no interaction with the father, you pay Lobola and then the relationship begins, then you do the best you can. Sometimes that's just the way it's going to happen. But mainly I'm speaking here to Christians and I'm speaking to Christian fathers and maybe a Christian father who doesn't see it as important of taking the initiative Mm. in vetting Mm. the man for his daughter or even the flip side, Mm. you know, the the vetting the the girl that is interested in the man. Uh, The father has to take responsibility and researching these things before he gives his formal approval. That's a good point. And I can only think of future episodes when so many of these cultural dynamics will be unpacked. But this opens another can, um, as it were. There are people who are trying to honor their parents. Here's someone who's trying to listen and their parents, um, especially in a country with a history like South Africa, Uh, where we have a history of apartheid and racism and the like. And so what about someone who has a very close relationship with their parents? They want to start this off and their parents get tripped up on the fact that their prospective uh, relational interest is not of the same ethnicity, not of the same culture or the same race. How should someone go about this situation? How do they think about it biblically? Yeah, so we've talked about interfaith relationships, marriages that are not allowed. That would be you have a Christian and a non-Christian. 
But when it comes to interracial marriage, we would say this is absolutely allowed in Scripture. According to Genesis 1, all races are created in the image of God and ultimately stem from the same father as Acts 17 tells us. In fact, Scripture doesn't really even speak in terms of race. Scripture does not divide people by skin color. Scripture does not divide people by physical features. Rather, it divides people according to tribes and language groups. So one example would be Ruth 4. Here's Boaz. He's a Jew. And here is Ruth. She is a Moabite, and they marry. The same thing in Numbers 12. We find Moses. He's a Jew. That's an ethnic group. Most likely married an African. God rebuked, in fact, and punished Miriam for criticizing them in Numbers 12 later on in the passage. So I would say different cultures and ethnic groups may certainly present added challenges to a husband and a wife. We just need to be honest about that. You need to be open about that. Recognize that sometimes these challenges may not be able to be overcome, but they should not be final barriers for marriage as Colossians 3.11 explains to us. What a treat, Mfundisi. To our audience, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to like and subscribe to keep posted with more upcoming content. Feel free to share this episode with someone who might find it interesting and visit BetweenTwoCultures.com for other resources like this. I'm your host, Yamikani Katunga, and until next time, that's it from Missionary Minds. <laughs>